ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Security Insider podcast. Uh, I'm your host, John Bigelow, and I'm here today with Nick Martin. Nick is the Head of Property and Security Services at AGL Energy and the current head, or sorry, the current chair or and Sorry, the current chair of the Forum of Australasian Security Executives. I'm tripping over myself, apparently, Nick. I can't speak. That's right. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, John. So tell me, what is the Forum of Australasian Security Executives? Good question. It's a, it's a group that's evolved over time. So it's been around since the 90s. It was originally known as SecMan, so people would have, may or may not have heard that name. And uh, The group was essentially a... a, a team of people that were brought together that had similar heads of security role to try and get some information sharing happening and some lessons learned and and also then help each other operationally day to day and it it originated in victoria a lot of it was uh, i think driven out of some of the collegiate um, relationships that were formed in vic police and then from there it grew and grew currently uh, as of now it's got about 50 plus members Uh, The criteria for participating in the forum is you hold the senior security role in your organisation and that role has a national context. That's pretty much the criteria. You're also, we we also try and get one of our existing members to sponsor someone in. So that gives us a little bit of due diligence on that person. Uh, The group itself really, it's got three main aims. One is it provides a forum uh, where we meet four times a year uh, and it fills a whole day and allows those people to come together to talk about what they're facing, what they're seeing, uh, and almost like a bit like a group therapy session is how I'd probably yep. describe it. Uh, it also allows um, for us to focus on common issues so we can set up working groups around. So currently we've got two working groups. One is around the insider threat, which uh, you hear the, the government talk about quite a bit. And then the other one is really around aggression. So aggression, whether it's from customers, staff, etc. And then the third, the third remit of the group after you've done that sort of the providing a forum for people to share ideas, work on problems, the third one is really uh, the relationship with government, whether that's at the Commonwealth level or whether that's at the state level, uh, to help inform them in their decision making uh, and and also build that relationship so in times of need we can get information and support from them as well. So they're, they're the three main um, roles of the group and uh, like I said, it's it's 50 plus members uh, really generally fairly good participation each quarter and uh, and we're hoping to not necessarily grow it but change the, the cultural mix of the team. So uh, it's, as you can imagine, that the makeup of a group like FaZe drawing off people out of the security industry that generally have come from a law enforcement or military background is going to have a certain type of person. So one of the big things for us is trying to look at how do we shift the, the makeup of that group, the demographic, the the, the culture, the whether male or female, whatever that may be. So bring some of that diversity into into the mix. Sure. Now, as a group, I believe, um, you know, as a sort of large group of the, the main security users and managers across Australia, you were recently involved in the formulation of the ASPE paper um, from boardroom to situation room, why corporate security is national security. Can you tell me a little bit about your phase's role in that paper and then Let's, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the actual paper and what it found. Look, I think the, the, the paper itself uh, was, a, was a great concept and I, I support ASIOR for, for funding that, funding that and, and then pushing it out into the public domain. It's probably the first time that I've seen that done where someone said that if you look at 
if you look at national security and you, and you look at the role of law and traditional state-based law enforcement, and then you look at the, some of the national security agencies, uh, they've got this fairly good collective picture of where they think the threat is. The biggest shadow in that is is the security organisations, whether they're sitting within corporates or whether they're organisations that sit outside that provide services to corporates. They're not. They haven't got a. They haven't got any recognition for the role that they play, really, and they haven't got the. I don't think they've got those trusted relationships that allows them to share information back and forth to build that picture. So, this paper was great for per identifying that. I think it's a it's a first step in allowing Australia to evolve to a point where there is a trusted relationship between government, business, and education, because I think that's actually the third factor: is is um, educational institutions and the role that they play in supporting whether it's thought leadership or whether it's being exposed to one of the significant risks around insider threat. That there's a whole range of things there, but that's probably the next step. So I think we recognise that that was a great idea to be involved in that. It, not all 50 members contributed to it. We were able to get uh, ASPE to our meeting in Canberra. They talked about what they were trying to do. They took feedback from the broader group. And then a few of us then represented FaZe um, from a collective viewpoint. It wasn't necessarily just my opinion. It wasn't other members of FaZe's opinion. We were trying to voice what we saw from both FaZe and our role inside corporate Australia. And and I guess what were some of the issues that were highlighted in the paper? Well, it goes back to what I was saying. I, I don't think Australia yet has evolved to a point where there's a level of trust between government, national security agencies and corporate when it comes to sharing information and meaningful information, I mean by that, in that we get told that there's a big insider threat issue in Australia, yet I know for a fact that myself and many other people within FAZE, probably the majority, have never reported that as a problem to national security agencies. So where are they seeing the threat? How are they identifying it? And if there is a threat to us, how are they informing us of that? So there's a there's a bit of a gap there. So it's very hard, I think, when you're trying to stand up a program internally because you're hearing that it's a threat, but you have no real basis for presenting that to the business. So I, I, I don't know what framework I have should have in place. I don't know what processes. I don't know where I should be looking. I mean, as you could imagine, trying to identify an insider inside a business is difficult. I mean, you don't even, where do you start? And you've also got to be very careful that when you start these programs, that they're done in a, a way that doesn't send the message that we don't trust you as a staff member. Yeah. So, so I think that was the that was the big thing for us is how do we get to a meaningful relationship where we can actually share information back and forth between the private sector and and the government. And what do you think the current roadblocks are? I mean, why do you think there is that hesitancy or reticence on behalf of the government to have that kind of relationship? I think the the big issue for government is they've got a very good system for classification of information and they've got very robust relationships in place for how they pass that outside their agencies. When it comes to corporates, I think they don't believe that if that information gets passed out, it's not going to be treated in the same manner as it would be with inside government and then they may lose control of that. And I think that makes them nervous. On the corporate side, so from the corporate going in out back to government, there's a general nervousness, and I'm speaking generally here, this is not to do with FaZe or me or AGL, just generally. I think there's a nervousness within businesses to provide 
that type of information to government that it may come back as some sort of regulatory overlay. Yeah. And so how do you how do you get that relationship to a point where you say, well, we want to share all our problems with you, but we don't want then you to feel like you're exposing Australia to this risk and the only way we can deal with that risk is then we, s we put a regulatory overlay across the top of you, similar to the Security of Critical Infrastructure Act, for instance. Um, was that done in a way that they worked with business and there was trust, or was that done in a way where we're just going to go broad blanket legislation right across the top of you and get the outcome that we want? And that's the, it was the second. And I think that's the nervousness in passing information back and forth. So just to continue on with that, there has been a model in the past where there's been a successful relationship between government and business and, and security of information. And that was the old agency security officer model where you had a, a member of an organisation who acted as agency security officer. They were cleared inside the, um, the vetting process of government. The locations information was stored and the terminals the information was passed on was all vetted by, by the government as well. And that, seemed, that model seemed to work. Um, Maybe that's the model. Maybe sometimes what old is new again, and maybe that's the model for the future. Yeah. Why do you think we moved away from that model? Well, I've heard I heard a lot of people say that the relationship and information sharing was better before nine eleven than it is after. Okay. And I don't know the reason behind that, but maybe prior to that, a lot of these agencies were quite small. Yep. And a lot of the people working in roles like mine may have come from those agencies. So there was a relationship there that, oh, you know, Nick's just left X place and now he's working here and I know him because I worked with him and I'm happy to have that informal conversation. Maybe after 9-11, as agencies expanded and grew and became more professional and their processes became more rigid, it was harder and harder for them to break outside that to give that information and build that relationship. And then, yeah, over time, they've grown larger and larger and there's the, you're not you don't necessarily have that link between I left an agency and I work in a business and I can maintain that over a long period of time. So maybe that's the answer. Um, maybe there's also much more repercussion now for people perceived to be releasing information and they're not authorised to do. Yep. So as a, a senior security lead within a large Australian organisation, what would you like to see more of out of this sort of relationship with the government? It's what we've been saying to them for you know 12 to 24 months. They... We need to create a mechanism where we can openly share information between each other. Uh, th and that's not every single organisation. I think that, that was the other thing that was challenging the government. It was they were, they were trying to engage with every business, whether there was, and I'll, I'll take the extremes here, it, it could have been a small business that had no security infrastructure in place at all. They might have had a contract with a security service provider to do um, security guarding and systems. But the person who oversaw that could have been a procurement officer, could have been a chief operating officer, a risk officer, whatever. But no one with any sort of security background or relationships with, with government. Up to the other end where you have a Qantas who very close working relationship with government, very good information sharing. And so the government was trying to treat both those extreme ends of the spectrum the same. And, yeah. had, and so what we've said to them is look at where look at where your real risk lies, look at who's in those organisations and how you can work with them and, and maybe adjust the, the information you provide uh, depending on the organisation and their maturity in that space. And where that became evident, they held a, uh, a meeting with CEOs and they try to hold it each year. And the challenge was you'd have CEOs sitting in the room 
saying, I heard all this before from my head of security to other ones saying, this is amazing. I've never heard this before. Yep. Um, and as you can imagine, over time, what, what happened with that was that the, the CEOs who were participating, who'd been briefed, were saying, well, this is, I'm not giving up my whole day to sit here and listen to this briefing because I've heard it all before. Yep. One of the issues that came out of uh, this paper from boardroom to situation room, why corporate security is national security, if I understand it correctly, was that the the authors of the paper, uh, Dr. Anthony Bergen, Don Williams and Reese DeWald, were sort of looking at CEOs in organisations around Australia and how seriously they actually take security, which comes back to what we were talking about before, you know, does the CEO need to be involved in that executive level briefing? What What is your understanding of this from the paper and what has been your experience of it? I mean, do you think CEOs within Australian organisations take security as seriously as it needs to be taken? And if not, why not? And what should we be doing? The challenge I think with with that question is, it depends on the experience that the CEO's had. So if, sure. the, if that CEO has worked offshore, they'll have a very different perspective to security, say, as opposed to a CEO that's worked in Sydney all their life. Um, yeah. So you'll get ones that, we'll take it really seriously and be really invested in it and understand the importance of it. And that's either come from two reasons. One is they've been exposed to something that's shown them the importance of it or through conversations and relationships have heard what other organisations are doing and realised that maybe they're a bit exposed in that area. But the, the group that always gets missed in this, I think the CEOs are important, granted, but remember also that their day is 99.9% of their day is filled with essentially running a business successfully so it can give a return to its shareholders. The security piece is almost like, I need to make sure it's there and it's working and it's allowing us to do our business. That's that's their main priority. Yep. So they need to know about threats and what they need to do. That's really my job. And it's my job to be able to articulate that through the mechanisms that already exist in most corporates. And I think a lot of people get caught up on the CEO but in reality, the group that can have the most influence is the board. Yep. And the board is not dedicated to a particular business. You'll have board members that sit across three or four multiple businesses. So let's say you had a board member that sat at Talus, for instance, and their understanding of the importance of security around their operation, protection of information, all sorts of things. That board member goes and sits on a board in another business. They're going to bring a bit of that with them. They're yep. going to influence the conversation. So I think... Uh, the board, to me, is critical because that board also sits across the top of a... Most organisations have them, a, a risk management committee, audit and risk management committee. So if I have the right information, I believe that there's a, a threat or risk to the business, I have a mechanism to formulate a paper, put that paper through that risk committee. The board will deliberate on it, make a decision. The CEO sits on that committee. So that, I, th I think those mechanisms are probably the best mechanisms to get visibility of what you need to get done rather than trying to get your CEO in front of a government forum and hope that he'll get it and then come back and do something about it. Sure. So with regard to the, um, the, the forum of, of Australian security executives, what are the issues that, because that, you're a group of end users of security services, so what mm. are the issues as end users that you come across with regard to professionalisation of the security industry in general that you feel really are lacking or need to be tackled at the moment? Once again, I'm, I'm talking broadly here, not about yep. AGL or 
any other organisation or representing FaZe as a collective view because as you could imagine with our organisation and we're quite diligent about this, yep. we're very aware of the Australian Competition and Consumer Act. When you have a, a large number of people in a room that have significant buying power, we're very aware to refrain from any cartel behaviour, any third line enforcing, any of those types of activities because we don't want to be seen to be colluding to disrupt the security industry in any way whatsoever. Sure. So with all that up front, yep. <laughs> um, I think the biggest, the, the, the single biggest challenge for us is I think on the, I think on the security system side, that's fine. You know, as in there's, there's good, there's good providers and bad providers and and, everyone, and people get very particular about which systems they use, whether it's running cameras or access control, whatever it may be. Yep. The, the biggest issue really is the quality of um, security guarding resources in Australia. And I think the security guarding industry has been a victim of um, cost drive downs over the top of their services. So, you know, you've got organisations that want X, but only want to pay for Y. And yep. so I think that that's influenced a lot of businesses and you're finding within phase, people are trying to figure out how do we get a better quality resource uh, and, and not necessarily about the money, um, but how do, you, how do we get the industry to start providing a better quality resource for the services that we're after? Some businesses don't want that. Some businesses are ticking a box purely that I need X person to stand there and I want to pay the minimum amount of money for it. But there's other organisations that are willing to pay more to get a better quality service. And I think... Um, I think that's the challenge, is finding the businesses that can do that or willing to take the risk to do that. I understand, though, that when you talk about these things, you can only talk about it broadly and you can't speak on behalf of any organisation. So I use any of these examples just to illustrate the, uh, that point. But one of the biggest challenges we seem to come across over and over and over again is this disconnect between procurement departments and security departments. Because... You as, again, as an example only, you as security manager at AGL might say, okay, we have been using this particular security company, ABC Security, um, for the last three years. They've developed an operating system. They've developed systems and procedures that work well for us and we've managed to eliminate a huge number of the risks from our organisation. Procurement are now saying to me, we need to shave X number of points off the margin for security. I have to market test this contract by putting it back out to market. And three other people have come in under what company ABC are currently paying and they want me to go with one of them. Hmm. The challenge here now is in doing that, I'm in reintroducing all of these risks into the organisation because we're bringing back in unknowns and unknown unknowns and all sorts of things. I mean, as security manager in, in an organisation, how much, generally speaking, how much final say do you have over that contracting? Because it's all well and great if security is saying, well, we want company A, but procurement are turning around and going, bad luck, you're getting company X. Yep. So, look, it's a good question. And I think, I think once again, it comes back to one of, this is the broad challenge I've been speaking to. It's probably a thematic thing is that each organisation is so different in Australia when it comes to where the security, the head of security sits, the size of their organisation, the influence they have, and the role of procurement. So I'll give you an example of AGL. I'm happy to speak openly about it. I won't say the company um, that um, we use, but so if, if you think about an organisation without a security manager, the process of procuring security services is going to be run by procurement. They're not subject matter experts in security, so it's going to be very hard for them to discern one company from another in reality they'll have ability to do that 
And that's a gap, I think, in Australia in that you've got a lot of companies acquiring security services without a third party assisting them in doing that. So organisations that could come in and say, this is what you need to look for, this is the quality of service you need, and this is all based on your current threat or risk profile. So whether you're a retail business or a manufacturing business or a resource business, you know, you're going to have very different needs and wants. So that's that's I think that's a big bucket of contracts sitting right there that come under procurement. And I can't speak to that because really that's going to be driven by the procurement department and how well versed they are in security. In the security space itself, if I was to talk to AGL's procurement process, and I I don't know if people are aware of this, so I define the requirement that this is the scope of work that I want to deliver against. Is yep. Then I set up a panel that has broad representation from across the business. So essentially the end users, so people from power stations, corporate offices, and procurement. I am I am essentially, I have the responsibility for that contractual RFI process. So we go out to market, go through the negotiating process, sign the contract. I will be, I'm responsible end to end for that. So we go, we identify, let's say we, do, we identify, in the last process we identified a scope of work. We then identified five companies we wanted to invite. We brought them in. I stood up in front and said, this is where we're going with our security program at AGL. The procurement team got up and said, this is the procurement process. And it's a very agnostic process. It's not, yep. it's not particular to security. I mean, we could have been acquiring photocopiers. It would have been the yeah. same process. So once we've gone through that education piece, then we get the responses to the RFI or the RFP or whatever you want to call it. So they, they responded. And then that group of people that we'd selected as an assessment panel, um, and this was controlled by the procurement team, the procurement team took the responses and removed the commercials. And yep. I think a lot of people realise this goes on because I think a lot of people think, oh, as soon as I get that response, I'm flipping through to the to Appendix A, which is our costs and having a look at where we where they are. So the procurement team is quite good at gatekeeping the commercials out of the responses and so the team the assessment team then went through in a very structured way and assessed the suitability of those responses and, and there's a lot of factors in that one is um, how well was the response meeting the requirements the other part was how well was the response tailored towards AGL and its needs and then what else can that person what else can did that organization offer up as an add-on or a, that little twist of lemon at the end so what, yep. what else can they provide and then what was their experience in doing something similar either within Australia or globally? So once you've assessed all that, you come up with your shortlist. And then in that shortlist, then we bring those people back and we get them to pitch to us. Still haven't touched the commercials yet, by the way. Mm -hmm. um, they will come back and present. We will then, as a, a, as a selection panel, deliberate on that. Uh, choose, choose a successful company and then open contract negotiation with them based on the commercials that they were provided and using their commercials and the commercials of those other shortlisted entities as a negotiating tool. Right. So that's how it worked. So the, the budget piece was at the end. And in, in our last process, we, we made a slight saving. But if you think about security costs generally go up year on year. Most security organisations are bound by an enterprise agreement, so they're obliged to give increases year on year. So you know your security costs are going to go up. That's just a given. Um, but we were still able to make a saving. Yep. So I think, but that's a very mature procurement process. I don't think a lot of organisations may necessarily run in that way. 
Um, yeah. So I think the big opportunity for maybe ASIAL and the security industry is understanding how either providing advisory services on how to procure security services or some form of information pack on what to look out for and the dangers of not necessarily buying on quality but buying on cost. Yeah, well, I mean, this is one of the challenges we've knocked around in this podcast in the past because there are going to be certain base level on costs for any sort of security provider. And if you as a security manager and even with your procurement department, if you are if you get to the end of that procurement process where you're then going through the the commercial requirements of, of what they need from a financial perspective and you're looking at it and you can see that what they're offering you price-wise can't possibly meet the potential on costs required to run that contract. I mean, surely there's some level of responsibility that sits with the procuring company to say, we don't feel that you can actually offer following all of the legal requirements, mm-hmm. we don't feel you can offer those services for that price as opposed to just going, woohoo, cheap, great. Yeah, look, I agree, absolutely. And that's why um, when we went through this process, that we, the, I mean, when I say we've got a reduction, as a, yeah. I won't get into the, the details, no, no, but it, it's a reduction over three years of the contract and it's quite small, Yep. as a percentage of the value of the contract. Because I think everyone, if you if you can educate the people that are procuring your services, if you're a service provider, that I'm bound by an EBA that I have to pay X guard this money. And then if you see all my on costs associated with that, and if you see my net margin, which could be 3 to 5%, that's that's all I'm taking. Yep. And, and most I think most of the more most of the larger security service providers are quite good at being able to break that down for you and show you that. And then, the, so there shouldn't be big variations in mm. in what people are offering up in reality. I don't, I don't think there should be. The Where it gets a little bit tricky is misinterpreting the scope of work. That's yep. where it blows it out. So what we noticed in that process last time was that, that we had to challenge the providers to say, why is this so high? And then, mm. oh, well, we interpreted this is what you wanted. And then once you actually clarify that, it, it reduced it significantly. Yeah. And so, uh, once again, but that's a mature process where you're trying to work with them to get an understanding of where the costs lie, not I'm just going to drive you down, down, down until I get the cheapest outcome and then engage you. And then if you think about the basis for a relationship where you feel like my first interaction and the first steps we're taking together on this journey is a lack of trust between each other or I feel like I have given away too much and now I hold that against my client. So I, I, I'm, I think that's a big factor that a lot of people overlook is, is the basis for this contract a sound and trustworthy relationship where both parties feel like they're gaining from it? We're getting a good service. The provider says, well, I'm making good money so I can have a, a good business that keep, we keep investing in then you're going to have a good long-term relationship. But other, if, you, if you're not starting off like that, it will definitely sour and sour dramatically over time. So that, and that's the cost. That's the hidden cost that a lot of people don't recognise. Sure. In your role as both chair of, of FaZe and as security manager of AGL, though, I mean, do you feel that we've set up this almost sort of false economy here in Australia over the last 10, 20 years now where you, you say one of the biggest challenges you see... Um, with phase and in your role is the 
the quality of guiding services that are available to the end user to some degree. But at the same time, we've created this environment where most of these companies, as you alluded to a minute ago, are running on margins of somewhere between 4 and 6%. Hmm. Now, in any other sort of industry, if we were running on 4 to 6% and that was a racehorse, you know, you'd take it out the back and put it down. I hmm. mean, those sorts of margins are just unsustainable for a lot of businesses, yet we've forced the security companies through one scheme or another into this position. Uh, do you see that as being realistically sustainable moving forward? I mean, most of these, and, and you may or may not, I'm asking this as a hypothetical question, but most of those organisations really, in order to be able to remain healthy and provide a level of service that would be commensurate with the expectations of the people engaging them, should be running on 20 to plus percent margins. Hmm. And I agree. And I think that's what that's done is it's created the whole subcontracting culture, which I think is, and this is a thing where I, organizations are probably not doing their due diligence around that and not understanding the level of risk they're exposing themselves to by having essentially underpaid subcontractors providing services to them. Uh, and there's there's a fair chunk of risk that businesses are exposing to the, exposing themselves to there. So I think if you say, have we created a culture that's not sustainable? I'd say yes. Have we, Why is it able to sustain? I think it's because organisations aren't being diligent enough around understanding the sub the subcontracting process. I think it applies to cleaning as well. I yep. think that's going to be the next one that people start... I mean, you see it come out of organisations, 7-Eleven and so forth, but I honestly think that this will, be, this will come up more and more um, as people become more and more aware of what their rights are and, ha and the mechanisms for voicing what they believe is unfair work practices. So I, I think it'll correct itself that way. The other aspect is Australia is reasonably benign. There's not a lot going on here. So the, the actual quality of the people performing the task isn't getting tested that much. Yep. And I think that's allowing it to sustain. If, if it changed and the requirement of the person performing the role needed to be lifted, and where you saw this actually was with the AFL yeah. and, and the security provided to the AFL. And you saw that, and once again, I don't know the people, the company, whatever it is, but... You can see that when the scrutiny comes on, you've really got to make sure that your people there are doing a good job because they will be taken to task and the blowback can be massive. So I, don't, I think you'll find most people don't talk about the name of the company providing that service. They talk about how poorly the AFL handled that crowd management. Now, the reality is that crowd management was provided by the stadium, not yeah. by AFL. The game of AFL was occurring there, but the stadium would have contracted that service. So it's a... It's a I think what you'll find is there's two two things will sort this out. One is people or businesses and people will start to wise up to the the, the impact that the subcontracting is having on the quality of service and what ex what risks they're exposing themselves to. And if the security environment in Australia changes, people will have to go down the path of getting better people into those roles. Yeah. What role do you think organisations like FaZe, which are a group of senior security managers from across Australia in national roles, what group do you, what role do you think FaZe has in trying to educate procurement departments within organisations and say to them, look, long term, this is unsustainable. We can't keep contracting services at margins of four to six percent. Is that the security manager's role to try and engage in that kind of market awareness or does that fall somewhere else? No, no absolutely. So yeah, and, but it, once again, it comes back to 
that person's role and their influence in an organisation. Sometimes the security manager sits very high up, has a lot of influence, and other times they they haven't got a lot of influence or carry a big budget, mm. and and th- and that's the challenge. So you, it, you find with phases fifty members that there can be a broad spread from one person performing the security function nationally for an organisation through to people leading teams of hundreds of, you know. So it's, and depending on where they sit in that spectrum will influence the level of um, control they have over what they're trying to do. But we share that, we share inside phase the challenges of procuring security services and we, we educate each other on the best way to do that. So the process I just explained to you at AGL, uh, and also just some of the little hidden traps to make sure that any service provider that you engage, they disclose any subcontractors in use. And if that's all done up front, um, I know that the contractor we engage disclose their subcontractors up front, and that's fine. We, we know them, we can do the due diligence on them, we understand, we ensure that they're getting paid correctly. So that that's all fine. I mean, I'm not saying get rid of subcontracting, I'm just saying as long as it's disclosed and open and transparent at the start of the relationship and contractual relationship, then generally that's okay, and we we talk about that at phase. We don't, we but we don't get into companies and which companies to use or not use those sorts of things. It's more about the processes of engaging security services. So just in closing, then where where does this journey begin from your point of view? I mean, I know you spoke a minute ago about the two main factors that you think that will rectify some of this, but if we're trying to move the industry in a more professional direction and move away from this, you know price war essentially and i know there's a lot of people listening to this that it's oh, it's not a price war it's about building value into what we offer but the reality is we're all still running on four to six percent margins um if we're trying to move away from that to a more professional industry and a more professional market how do you see that journey beginning is it uh, and again I, I put that in the context of it's a complex issue that it's a complex issue that can't be reduced down to single point solutions but is it groups like face trying to educate procurement is it the security companies themselves uniting and standing up and just saying we're not going to do this anymore we're not going to we just we're not as an industry going to offer services at those sorts of levels or is it a combination of things or is it just one of those things where it's like i have no idea no i don't i think there's solutions absolutely there's solutions i think azio plays a key role in this i think it can influence uh, it can influence nationally through mechanisms like COAG, for instance. So if you can get all the states on the same page, which how they how they licence and and some of the costs associated with security services, that's a big jump forward because that's then you don't have people coming from, you know, doing state, getting a licence in one state and delivering services in other states. If you can get, um, if you can get, those awards in place nationally, if you can get some sort of regulatory framework in around subcontracting and disclosure, there's no reason why you can't address this. Because if there's a if there's a national price for security services because everyone's paying the same to get a, a license or everyone's being paid the same because they're on the same award, I think that's a big step in the right direction. And, I, and also, if, if a relationship between ASIL and government and phase in the government and phase in Azure is lined up and we're saying the same things to each other with the same messages and have we have the same concerns which you want to address. I think that will help us move in the right direction. But if we're trying to attack this one out, state by state, organisation by organisation, company by company, I don't think we're going to get too far. Yeah. Look, Nick, thank you very much for your time today. It's pleasure. been a Thanks, pleasure John. speaking to you. 
And uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to know more about ASIAL, uh, ASIAL itself as an association phase or any of the other stuff spoken about on the podcast, go to www.asial.com. Also, don't forget there are more podcasts like this one in the ASIAL Insider series. You can find them on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Android, and all the other great places that podcasts live. And thank you very much. We'll talk to you again next time.